consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge. Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the Sen Podcast, we're joined by Jerry Brown, who is an anthropologist, author, activist, and his latest project and research is called The Psychedelic Gospels, which we get into in this conversation. The Psychedelic Gospels reveals evidence of visionary plants in Christianity and the life of Jesus, and we already know that all over the world in spiritual traditions There is evidence of ancient people achieving and seeking altered states of consciousness all over the world. And we know that these things took place. So the work that Jerry brings to the table in this podcast really is a fascinating insight and gives you many things to think about in terms of the story of the past and what we've been told and what we're still being told. And there is many researchers now proposing that psychedelics have had a far greater impact on human culture and evolution. And not only this, but also the shaping and forming of religion. And it's very interesting to me to think about how psychedelics and visionary plants may have actually helped ancient cultures of the past map consciousness and understand spirituality. So anyway, this podcast will take you on a journey all the way from the Garden of Eden to ancient Egypt, even all the way to the possibility of Jesus himself ingesting visionary plants. And this information that has come forward is a huge part of the human story and we really wanted to explore and open up your minds to the possibility of this. So I know you are all going to find this one very interesting. So if you want to support the podcast, you can now do so by going to our Patreon page. And the good thing about Patreon is, Patreon really is the best way to support the podcast. And even if everyone who listens to this podcast just signed up for the $2 a tier, tier, which would be absolutely amazing, would be a huge help and would really help us provide you with even better content than we already are doing. We put so much time and effort into this podcast and the more people that do support this podcast will free us up and allow us to even put more and more effort into this thing. So please, if you can, just spare a few minutes Choose a reward tier that suits you and it would be really cool. So if you do want to become a patron and support the podcast, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon send or alternatively go to the Send Podcast website and have a look at the tiers. So anyway, let's jump in with this one. Enjoy. both of us are really looking forward to having a conversation with you today and there is so many different places where we were actually thinking about where could we start this with you and we already know that um, if we look around all over the world in spiritual traditions as well there's evidence of ancient um, people sort of um, achieving and seeking altered states of consciousness all over the world and we know that these things did take place so your work really does make a lot of sense in our eyes as well but just to start this as well, Jerry, would would love to know what was the sort of the synchronicities that led you up to this point in your journey now? Well, um, I can give you 
the short version and the longer version. I'm going to give start out with a little bit of the longer version and then move into what really was the catalyst for this research. However, to understand why I would even undertake such research, back in 1975, after my first LSD trip on Orange Sunshine, uh, at a, at a rainbow family gathering in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado in the United States. Um, that experience was so powerful that I wanted to understand more, a lot more about psychedelics. And being a founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University in Miami, I decided to design and teach a course on psychedelics and culture and to talk to understand humanity's long, rich interaction with psychedelics. So in the process, I learned a great deal about ethnobotany, about ethnomycology, about uh, mythology, about religion, about myth, uh, mythology. So that was all an understanding that I had as well as a good identification of psychoactive plants. Um, anything from the detours of European witchcraft to peyote of the Huichol Indians of Mexico to ayahuasca vines in the Amazon. Fast forward to your part of the world. In 2006, my wife and co-author, Julie and I, are on an anniversary trip to Scotland, to the Isle of Skye. And drawn by Dan Brown's very famous book and movie, The Da Vinci Code, when we were in Edinburgh, we went south just a little bit to Roslyn Chapel, which is described in The Da Vinci Code as a possible resting place of the Holy Grail, the Mary um, Magdalene. <laughs> There, in this chapel, which is a Catholic church built by Sir William Sinclair um, in the, from about 1440s on to 1480s when he died, I saw sculpted into the forehead of the most prominent green man of Roslyn Chapel, a psychoactive mushroom embedded upside down on the pineal gland of this green man that hangs down from the ceiling on a 15-foot stone boss. And this really started Julie and my head spinning. What was Sir William Sinclair trying to tell us? Why is there psychoactive imagery in a Catholic church? Would this be, could we find this in other churches and cathedrals in Europe, in the Middle East? And maybe there's something involving all the way back to the time of Jesus and the disciples. And at this point, we had to put on the brakes because our minds were really running away with the possibilities that this catalyst of the uh, magic mushroom in this Catholic church uh, initiated this line of thought. And the words of the great astrophysicist Carl Sagan came to mind. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. In other words, if we were going to research and write that psychedelics 
were involved in the history and even possibly the very origins of Christianity, then we had better have extraordinary evidence to prove this. And we went back and forth, and then several years later, in 2012, I was able to take a research sabbatical from my university, and we spent six months traveling through Europe and the Middle East, visiting small chapels, abbeys, churches, large cathedrals like Canterbury. And wherever we went, we were able to discern psychedelics, mushrooms, primarily the red and white Amanita muscaria and a variety of, of psilocybin mushrooms in Christian art. And by art, I mean in mosaics, in illustrated Bibles, in sculpture, in stained glass windows, in frescoes. And it was out of that, that at one point we'd seen enough and enough powerful information and interweaving of psychedelics, even with Christology, the story of the life of Christ, that we had an aha moment that gave rise to the theory of the psychedelic gospel as an alternative history, as a different story that is represented uh, in the gospels of the New Testament themselves. Wow, I love that, by the way, Jerry, as well. And that's a great introduction to the topic as well, because, yeah, um, yeah it really Definitely. is, because I, re I really love the questions that you are sort of asking and researching through this journey. And I think that the, if we do think about it, there are some really big missing, like you said, there are some big missing pieces in the human story. And it seems to be as well through my own journey as well, the more I'm educating myself and more I'm even analysing the topic of religion in particular, it seems it's a very sort of squidgy topic. And I think we've only actually, actually only got sort of a, ever ever only got sort of a tiny bit of the real picture of what actually was going on and either this is because of lost evidence or it was rubbed out or even just lost in translation as well but on that point as well i would actually love to know your thoughts on this i mean why do you think this understanding of the work that you've done as well and the understanding of psychedelics being an integral part of ancient uh, methodology and shaping our religion and things like that i mean why why do you think it's been lost do you think it's been covered up well uh, there's two parts to that question. It really hasn't been lost. It is just, it's been marginalized. It's been stigmatized, as you know, uh, from here, from at least in the U.S., from the drug wars, the war on drugs that made all of these psychedelics, um, at least the known ones, um, uh, Schedule One, the worst schedule part of the uh, Controlled Substances Act, meaning there's no redeeming human value, there's no value in, in medical research. And so there has been, for those of us uh, anthropologists, theologians, ethnobotanists, who study or work in this field, there is an incredibly rich literature from anthropology, from psychology, from pharmacology, uh, documenting the use of psychedelics, which I really prefer to call entheogens, from the Greek root word, en within, theo, deos, God, gen, generate, uh, chemicals and plants that generate the divine within. Uh, but there's a rich history. I mean, there, it's used among peyote, which has mescaline, among the Plains Indians of the United States, the Apache, the Kiowa, um, and many of the first peoples, uh, psilocybin in, in Europe and um, in the Mazatec of Oaxaca. 
ayahuasca, the visionary vine, which is uh, found among the Conibo and the Shipibo of the um, Amazon basin of South America. And also even the uh, aborigines of Australia have um, a plant they call picuri, that is psychoactive. Uh, not to mention the Amanita muscaria of the reindeer herders of, um, of uh, what is uh, Siberia in Russia today, but also all the way to Scandinavia. And this goes back in the archaeological record at least uh, 10,000 years back in the archaeological record. Um, if we look at the um, beheaded shaman of, the, of Algeria, of what today has become Algeria, and if uh, Graham Hancock is right, and the cave paintings of Europe, uh, including the famous cave paintings in France, are really depicting psychedelic-inspired visions, then humanity's documented interaction with psychedelics could be traced back 30 to 40,000 years of the known archeological evidence. Uh, so there is a rich history. It is not well known. Uh, I think out of uh, academic scholarly and those who really follow psychedelics. Uh, so you have that aspect. Uh, it was even in the classical cultures, for example, uh, one of the most famous works in this area is by R. Gordon Wasson, Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality, in which he identified the plant juice god, Soma, of the Hindu Rig Veda, one of the world's oldest religious texts written down in the Sanskrit about 3,500 years ago from a long, long oral tradition, as the psychoactive Amanita muscaria mushroom that red uh, mushroom with the white dots that's so popular in Scandinavian folk tales. My students tell me it's in Super Mario game <laughs> uh, where the mushroom pops up and he gets yeah. energized. Um, so it's now on the back roads of culture, but at one time it was in the center of culture. So here we have it in the class, in the foundation of uh, the Hindu religion itself, and also um, the Kikion, the potion that was drunk at the Eleusinian mysteries of ancient Greece at the um, in the Telesterion at the uh, at the shrine to Eleusis, which is about 14 kilometers from Athens. It is an archaeological site that anyone can visit today. This was also psychoactive, and this ritual was practiced for 2,000 years, uh, from 1400 BC until about the 400s. Uh, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and then it was suppressed as, as paganism. So there is a long, uh, rich history. Uh, but our view in the psychedelic Gospels is this was not suppressed in Christianity. It was, as in many shamanic practices, secret. It was the holiest of the holy. It was dealt with in secrecy. In fact, in the Eleusinian Mysteries of Greece, uh, you could not reveal what you experienced on the potion uh, at the uh, high point of the rituals in the Telesterian Auditorium uh, on pain of death. So these things have always been treated with secrecy, and we believe they were dealt with in secret for the initiates because they were, they were literally, literally hidden in plain sight. 
I mean, the thing at Roslyn Chapel was there for 500 years. Why did no tour guide, did no historian, did no poet who wrote about Roslyn, did no theologian or church historian notice it? Why? Because we tend to focus on our disciplines and these people do not study you know, ethnomycology, the, the way in which different ethno groups use mushrooms. And as one famous, um, one famous art historian told me who worked on the great Canterbury Psalter of, uh, created in, in um, Canterbury Cathedral around the 1180, I wouldn't know a mushroom if I saw one. So these have not been, in our view, suppressed. They were eventually suppressed, we believe, after the coming of the Inquisition in Christianity. Uh, but up to that time, we believe these were practices that were carried on in secret, as they were, or in quiet, as they were in many shamanic cultures. To summarize, there's a rich, long history. It's not really well known to people who don't really focus or devote themselves to this uh, area of study. And um, it's, um, it's really not been suppressed, but very often treated with reverence and secrecy. Mm-hmm. I, I love that, by the way, Jerry, as well. And um, there was so much in that as well. So a, a point coming to my mind there as well, especially when you brought up Graham Hancock as well in relation to this topic, because um, it was very interesting to me because I was... Um, I was listening to one of his talks a while ago, and he was talking about how he was t- he made the assumption. Say, if, um, I think it might have been an old theory, and it might have changed a little bit now. But he was talking about if the he was saying if the survivors of a lost sort of highly advanced civilization settled in sort of various parts of the globe, for example, let's say Egypt, something like that, and people who lived there at the time had been primitive. He said, like, say, if an advanced civilization did come around the corner, they would actually pass that knowledge on. And then he talks about he says um, he talks about if survivors of a sort of a lost, highly advanced civilization, were intelligent and things like that. And he then talks about, if, and if they did have sort of profound knowledge of psychedelics and um, all the states of consciousness and things like that, he said he would then, they, then they would feel that they had to take it upon themselves to educate a sort of a less-minded civilization, which I think is really interesting. And um, it makes me also ask a question from that as well, because, I mean, if that was the case, and I mean, that's, it's a strong argument that Graham Hancock does make, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it makes me ask the question, how would them sort of them uh, primitive-minded people actually sort of um, perceived them people who give them the knowledge? Because it says to me that them people could actually perceive them as gods. Um, look, this is all in the realm of, of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to make a distinction between, you know, what I can show smoking gun hard evidence for, mm-hmm. what is interpretation and what is speculation? Uh, I think Graham Hancock is a brilliant researcher and writer. Uh, I don't think the the hypothesis uh, is completely proven about ancient advanced civilizations, although I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. But I think there's another, uh, there are a couple of other avenues to consider here. And one is that um, when humanity evolves out of the trees of Africa um, and comes down onto the savannas and moves from gathering fruits and nuts to um, being hunters, one of the things you use to track animals, obviously, is their dung, is their scat. And this is one of the places where psychoactive psilocybin mushrooms grow. 
So it is also possible that humanity had an organic, natural connection with the uh, psychedelic world that opened up the world of the supernatural to them, that opened up worlds of other dimensions, that altered their consciousness uh, to conceive of things that had not occurred to previously uh, to the human mind. So this is a, a very plausible way. We know that this is part and parcel of the religious story of humanity and that about 95% of all different peoples that have been known have had some kind of mind altering experience as part of their religious experience to take them into the world of the ancestors, the world of the gods and goddesses, whatever names they decided to give them, the worlds of the powers of the afterlife. And psychedelics obviously can open up that dimension and in that case would be considered revered uh, sacred plants. Mm -hmm. You could even take this one step further where one of the most um, innovative and brilliant and dedicated minds in psychedelics, Terence McKenna has gone uh, in his book, Food of the Gods, where he even suggests a stoned ape hypothesis of evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, that not only did humanity interact with these plants, but these plants were part and parcel of the spark that brought forth uh, expanded human consciousness. Uh, so though that also, there we have no experimental evidence of that hypothesis, um, although I'm considering um, proposing a way that it could be tested. Uh, however, we do know that these plants are were sacred and in the people who still continue to use them uh, today, continue to be sacred. Uh, as a Weechul shaman said, you know, when someone said, oh, that's a drug, peyote is a drug, he said, no, aspirin is a drug, peyote is sacred. Wow. Well, that is absolutely amazing, Jerry. And it, it's a very interesting point when you bring up, when you bring it up like um, how we first expanded our minds using these psychedelic um, experiences. And it's kind of like they have created the awareness. And maybe this awareness right now, it's actually needed right now more than ever, but maybe it's more useful to be kept this in secret like we've been seeing because it's going to be more, like it's just going to be more, if this gets out there, it's just going to like completely revolutionize the world. It's just like as well, because I want to jump in as well, it's just like what we had Anthony Pick on the podcast as well and he, he t tells a story about a guy called uh, Benny Shannon and he talks about how um, yes. he says Benny Shannon like visited all the sort of ayahuasca ayahuascas in the world and things like that and he, he was going to all the best yogas and all the best meditators and um, Benny Shannon turns around and says that after all, seeking all this information from all these different shamans and people like that the best information he received was actually from a nice scream, scream salesman who said if you want to find the secrets of the mind you actually want to look in uh, secrets of the universe sorry you actually want to look inside your own mind like either being the pineal gland so I think it's very interesting what, what Chris was saying there just to reiterate on his point because I actually think that maybe what Chris was trying to say there maybe in terms of like something being more secret maybe it, it, need, it needs to be a little bit secret so that only the right people can find it at the right time yeah definitely that's what that's what I was trying well, to indicate yeah yeah I 
I hear what you're saying, but um, what's happening now is the cat is definitely out of the bag. Mm -hmm. um, we are um, definitely among tribal and ancient traditions. There was a lot of secrecy and ritual around these. And obviously, well, not obviously, but back from the 40s and certainly in the 50s and 60s, there was a great deal of scientific and academic research on psychedelics, everything from um, you know, you helping people stay out of prison to helping people get over alcohol to helping people deal with death and dying. And then came the, um, the whole political cyclotron, uh, as you know, certainly here in the United States of the 60s. Uh, but there's also the civil rights movement going on, the anti-war movement going on now, the hippie movement and the acid revolution with Timothy Leary. Uh, as its um, uh, spokesperson uh, comes to the fore. And all of that got swept away in the drug hysteria that followed. And to, to put this really into the political perspective of the power institutions of the world, uh, President Nixon, who branded Timothy Leary at that time, around 1970, as the most dangerous man in America, Oh my God, when I hear that, I wish, I wish this was our biggest problem in the <laughs> world today, a Timothy Leary, given, you know, all of the things that you know as well as I do that are going on uh, in, in this world that makes life so precarious sometimes. Um, and later on, one of Nixon's prime, um, yeah, so, so basically two points I'd like to make was uh, Nixon who banned uh, these substances and, of course, continued the war on marijuana, the reefer madness in the 1970s. Uh, about recently, one of our, his uh, prime lieutenants um, said, look, we had a huge political problem, the anti-war war issue, the civil rights issue. And look, we couldn't make it illegal to be black or to be a hippie or to protest. So we condemned these drugs. We made them illegal so we could raid people's homes, so we could uh, kind of dissolve the energy in the anti-war movement. It was really politics more than science. The other point I'd like to make is that now, starting in 1999, through the research by Roland Griffiths, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University, we have here in the United States and also very prominently in England, um, revived the study of psychedelics within a legal approved framework towards testing them for specific things like helping veterans from wars in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, get over post-traumatic stress syndrome or helping relieve anxiety and depression in terminal cancer patients. And Roland Griffith uh, is the sort of grandfather of this new medicine and new science of psychedelics. So really, in many ways, we are in the uh, rising period of a psychedelic renaissance where these substances are being revisited for their scientific, their medical, their spiritual, and even their creative purposes. For example, um, Amanda Fielding uh, in the UK, who runs the Beckley Foundation, is conducting research now, uh, controlled research, to see 
House Silicon Valley here in the United States, microdosing, taking small doses of LSD, 10 or 20 micrograms, as opposed to a heroic dose of 200 or 400 micrograms, really affects productivity because that's one of the many claims that's coming out of this whole, um, not, yeah, underground, but not so underground microdosing movement in the United States. So my basic point here is that this is well out of the closet, certainly in the United States, Europe, um, the UK, and uh, this research is going on, and I think we will eventually see, as we saw with marijuana, where legalization follows medicalization, we will eventually see uh, the uh, legalization of psychedelics for use in clinical settings. And I stress this word in clinical settings. This is not going to be dispensed um, you know, at a, at a machine in Colorado the way that marijuana is for recreational use. Yeah, I love that by the way as well and Jerry as well when you brought up the point as well um, you, you touched you said the word uh, is a rising period now currently in civilization. I mean just to, to sort of spin that back to sort of ancient civilization as well I mean is there any knowledge of how well this information was actually known in history among ancient civilizations? Oh absolutely yeah so in our book um, we describe that in the first part of the book uh, called the first religion and we trace it back into the uh, Hindu Rigveda, where Gordon Wasson identified uh, Soma as the psychoactive Amanita muscaria plant. And fully one cycle, uh, one mandala of the ten mandalas of the Hindu religion are devoted to in praise of Soma. But Soma is a strange plant. It has no roots. It has no bark. It has no branches. What could it be? And this befuddled uh, people in the West when the Sanskrit of the Hindu Rigveda was translated into the English, the French, and the German. And there were also incredible praise of Soma. Let me read you just something very brief from um, section hymn um, of the Rigveda. We have drunk Soma and become immortal. We have attained the light the gods discovered. What now may foeman's malice do to harm us? What, O oh immortal, mortal man's deception? So this was very well known. Um, other verses in the Rig Veda say, I have picked up the earth and I have put it here or there. Or heaven does not equal one half of me. Have I been drinking Soma? So these plants were well known in the ancient world. Uh, in Eleusis, it is said that, you know, a man walks in peace and has no fear of the afterworld after he has partaken in the Eleusinian mysteries. And, you know, Socrates participated in this, Plato participated in this. And while they could not describe their own experiences on pain of death, they could talk generically about the gift that Eleusis had given uh, the Kikion potion uh, to, to the Greek world. So it was known, and it was known among the ancient uh, shamanic people, and shamanism is the first religion. It is the religion of our hunting and gathering 
ancestors for about 95% of human history. Uh, so it, it is known, it is not maybe widely known, but it was certainly known. And one of, I think, the biggest mistakes uh, made by Leary and his associates in the 1960s and 70s was to look at LSD, which had just been discovered in 1938 in the Swiss laboratory by Albert Hoffman, as something new, as a new invention, as a new discovery, without rooting it in the vast ancient tradition of humanity. And even Christianity emerged in a circum-Mediterranean area, rife with mystery cults, healing cults, the Therapeutae of Egypt, Eleusinian mysteries, uh, and others who knew the rich pharmacology of the herbal world. So um, it's not surprising uh, that it is a mystery that is fundamental to many, many religions. And our point here in the book, after we present the evidence, uh, which I'd be happy to talk about a little, we're not here to challenge anyone's faith in Christianity but rather introduce a mystery about Christianity that we believe is prevalent in many religions. For as Jesus said, you know, say not, lo, look here, look there. The kingdom of heaven is within. So once again, you know, as others say in, by phrasing it in other ways, there is something very special within if you look within. Yeah, I love that, by the way, Jerry, as well. And I really loved how you said about that at the end, about how you're not sort of just, you're not trying to sort of just blast people's minds and change their opinion. You're just sort of trying to present information. I think that's beautiful because I think that's what all topics, everyone needs to do in all topics. Mm. And um, as well before, um, Jerry, as well, when you were mentioning about um, Socrates and Plato, you said, was that, I was actually wondering because I know I was reading somewhere as well in Egypt as well, um, certain people would actually travel um, every year to participate in a ceremony. And I think I met, I think we mentioned where they were talking about how they would drinking certain certain brews as well i mean is that to do with the mystery schools as well um i believe so yeah. we have uh several incredible photographs uh in our book from ancient egypt and they go back um oh they go way back the centuries i'm going to grab one right here and uh it shows um an egyptian woman standing before Horus, um, and the sun disk is resting on the head of Horus and emanating from Horus's head, from the sun disk, are the flowers of the Datura plant, which is a very powerful uh, hallucinogen, uh, to take her and travel with him immortally through the underworld. So um, there's a broad knowledge of this, as I've, I've said before. When, when we're actually talking about the, um, the mystery schools there as well, I mean, what is your, through your understanding, the research that you've done, what is your sort of definition of what actually a mystery school was and what have you actually, have you actually uncovered any other interesting information around that topic? Well, um, I look at mystery schools in a, in a very broad framework as an example of shamanism. Mm -hmm. And I would define shamanism with the Greek anthropologist, Mircea Eliade, as ancient techniques of ecstasy. Ecstasy, as the Greek root word, ecstasis, 
meaning flight of the soul. So what we're talking about here are ancient tools and methods to inspire the flight of the soul. That's what's common through all of the varieties and names and, and practices and rituals of shaman, shamanism. The shaman and or his followers fly, move to the supernatural world where they encounter the powers, the gods and the goddesses, and then bring back boons, benefits to humankind. Maybe it's healing, maybe it's divination, maybe it's foretelling of the future, maybe it's a good hunt. That's what's common to all of shamanism. And that's what we find in the mystery schools. We have a section in the book called Entheogenic Egypt. And it starts out by noticing that there were rituals in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is actually titled, the literal translation is the Book of Coming Forth by Day. And what the Egyptologists came to realize that this was not simply because it was misnamed a book about where someone would travel uh, after they died. And you, we are you know, very familiar with all of the funereal um, rituals that the Egyptians went and the goods and the benefits and the accompaniment that their uh, people would be given to help them in the afterworld. But this was actually saying something different, that the Egyptian uh, pharaoh and that the priests and priestesses would travel forward out of the body by day and return. And they would become an ah, a being of light. And then the Egyptologists who really pushed this and said, but we can't imagine what was their ancient technology. Are there tools for doing this in the chambers underneath the pyramids and in their temples? And as I'm reading this, gentlemen, I say, this is an out of body. This is a psychedelic experience. This is a mind altering experience. And then we have to ask ourselves, is there a history of psychedelic plants in Egypt? And absolutely there is. There's a very rich uh, history. Uh, in our book, we show a man confronting a hyena. And there are large, several large Amanita muscaria mushrooms in that uh, painting. And as I mentioned in the Lady Taparet, and that painting is in England, uh, the Lady Taparet, that small uh, little uh, Stella of her is in the Louvre Museum in Paris. So this is what we did in our travels. We traveled, we went exhaustively to the museums, we went to chapels and churches, and we looked at this and we looked for psychoactive plants uh, in these. So, so there is a rich evidence from Egypt, and we have to remember that Egypt one is where um, monastical Christianity begin, began. Uh, we believe that although Jesus may have traveled to India during the long period of the missing years, we believe he also went to Egypt where the Holy Family would have taken him, uh, you know, to escape Herod's wrath. Uh, so it was familiar to them. He, and we believe he learned this otherworldly philosophy in Egypt from these Egyptian rituals, as well as learning the lore of psychoactive plants.
because remember when it came time when it in the bible where it says uh, he says you know what should we pay taxes and he says render unto caesar jesus says what is caesar's and unto god what is god this enraged the um uh you know the israeli the hebrew uh, zealots who hoped who believed that jesus was going to be literally the physical leader of Israel who would help them throw off the, the hated yoke of the oppressive Roman rulers. And he said, no, my kingdom is not of, of this world. My kingdom is of the other world. And where did he learn uh, this particular uh, philosophy? We believe it was in Egypt. Monasticism begins there. Uh, it is also the place where the Gnostic Gospels were discovered in 1945. And when Christianity you know, emerged and then began to strengthen itself by the second century, it was starting to uh, uh, suppress certain points of view that it did not feel fit in the orthodoxy. And one of these was Gnosticism, one of direct knowledge that God is within us. And these Gnostic texts were buried in the sands of Egypt um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and were finally unearthed by two Arab peasants who were looking for um, kindling um, and finally made it back into the Coptic Museum in Egypt and then they were translated. And while some of them are like the Bible, some which claim to be the sayings of the living Jesus are very are not like anything that's found in the Bible. For example, in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, Jesus tells Thomas that they have both received knowledge from the same source. And Jesus says to his disciples gathered there, compare me to someone, and I'm quoting from our book, um, the kingdom of heaven chapter, compare me to someone and tell me whom I am like. Thomas said to him, Master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like. Jesus said, I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring, which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I shall become he, and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. Now, what's amazing about this passage is Jesus is talking about a drink and a spring that he has measured out. He knows the dose. He's measuring the dose. Mm -hmm. And we feel that while um, there's no dateable Christian art back before 200s, gentlemen, uh, for a variety of reasons, mm -hmm. persecution, poverty, you need wealth and institutions to build buildings to put art in. So once the earliest evidence of psychedelics in Christian art we found was in the Cathedral of Aquileia in northeastern Italy dating back to 300 AD. So what we had to do, Julie and I, is we had to look back now with the theory of the psychedelic gospels, revisit the New Testament, revisit the Gnostic gospels, and see if there was indirect evidence or statements in there that looking at it now with psychedelic eyes could be interpreted as evidence of psychedelics in that time. Because obviously we don't have what attorneys and archaeologists would consider to be smoking gun evidence, you know, direct scriptural or, or sculptural evidence of Jesus in the presence of psychoactive plants. So these scriptures are 
are true uh, evidence in this case. Yeah, I, lo- I love that, by the way, Jerry, as well. And you made a very interesting point that I definitely want to come back to when you, you were talking about actually how about Jesus actually could have possibly learned his like sort of worldly oh. philosophy, which I think is very interesting. I want to definitely go back to that. But there's just a point I wanted to go back to because I didn't want to forget about it. And then when you were talking about your your artwork before that you, you and your wife has found and things like that, because it's very it, it is very great body of evidence. And when like when you do look at that artwork, it's evident that psychedelics were pre- prevalent at that time. I mean, but I was actually fr- from that as well. I had a question from that. I mean, when when the artist actually did that artwork, do you think in a way they were actually trying to leave sort of a hidden message like to future seekers like like yourself? Well, I, I very possibly, mm-hmm. but I think somewhat differently. I think they were saying, look, in the sixth century, Pope Gregory said, let art be the Bible of the illiterate. Because up until the invention of the Gutenberg printing press in the 1400s, and the first thing that was ever printed, obviously, was the Bible, um, most of the population of Europe was illiterate. So it would be through the art that the stories and teachings of the Bible would be expressed. Uh, And while we believe that this was not available to all faithful, to all believers, it was available to the priests, it was available to the initiates, it was probably available to the pagan royalty who, you know, felt very comfortable often moving between a Christian world and a pagan world. They were not mutually exclusive uh, for much of history. And so um, they certainly were available as part of the instruction of the initiates. Whether they thought about what are we leaving here for the future, I cannot say, but they obviously thought it was important enough to put it into the paintings. For example, in, um, there's a, a, there is an il- illustrated Bible well, an illustrated Psalter, a book of prayers, called the Great Canterbury Psalter. It was begun in 1180 at the scriptorium of Canterbury Cathedral, the place where Bibles were made. And the first hundred pages of it contain rich imagery of psychedelic mushrooms. And in one of the early folios or pages uh, three, now, after they've moved through Genesis, uh, is the life and mission of Jesus. He's been baptized by John, and he's off on his healing mission. And there's this famous story, and this is an illustration from the Psalter, the Canterbury Psalter. And it's an illustration of Jesus healing the leper. And Jesus is standing over the leper. Uh, it's actually plate 14 of the many color photographic plates in our book and he's got his hand on the leper's head and there's a scroll in Jesus's left hand with Latin saying on it and then it goes to the back of the leper and the leper has a scroll that unfolds and it says master if you want you may cleanse me and however and Jesus the scroll Jesus is holding says I want to be cleansed. But what is fascinating about this um, illustration is that the scroll of the leper that says, Master, um, if you want, you may cleanse me, is not going to Jesus. It's unfolding down to the bottom of the illustration to a psychoactive mushroom. 
And Jesus is floating almost as if suspended about that psychoactive mushroom. And we believe that here the artist is making a direct link between Jesus's healing ministry and the curing power of the sacred mushrooms. And certainly in much, much of shamanism, one of the prime uses of entheogenic or psychoactive plants is for healing. Well, Jerry, that's a fascinating insight there, and um, something I would just like to uh, point out is the more that, the more information and findings you keep revealing to us, it's it's kind of just more like an an awakening after an awakening, and it's it's like, did you think like the art, like Christianity's like original message was found there? Do you think it's like, because do you think this is what do you think this is what the original thought was, like the original message that the art was trying to send? Because it feels to me it's like the the art itself is trying to show like to us to express ourselves and not just follow blindly into faith and just just to push ourselves out there and just experience it all well i think that's a modern you know we're, we're using a modern language we're using our feelings and thoughts about freedom and expression in our own culture to try to interpret this early and medieval christian art and i think what the art is saying um is that these psychoactive plants were integral to the experience, awakening, maybe even his sense of divinity and immortality of Jesus. And let me give you a, a very powerful example, which is, comes from plates 6, 7, 8, and 9 of, our, of the color plates, photographs taken by my wife and co-author Julie of psychedelics in Christian art. And this is in the church of St. Martin in central France. And it is a series of frescoes painted on the wall. And one of them in the south choir wall of the church of St. Martin de Vic in France is of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And there's Jesus sitting on the ass. And there are his disciples following him, two of them with their hands upraised, palms facing forward in a gesture of awe. However, the joyful youth who are greeting Jesus into Jerusalem are not holding palm leaves, but one of the youth is holding on to the stem of one of five large, tan, smooth, psilocybin mushrooms, obviously a psilocybin mushroom. (laughs) And these mushrooms are as large uh, as the boy's head. And in Romanesque art, size mattered. I mean, that's not their normal size on the forest floor. And the artist is telling us these are important. We look towards the next wall, which is perpendicular. And Jesus is moving to the Tower of Jerusalem. And in the next wall are the Towers of Jerusalem. And there are the youth, again, up on top of the tower, cutting down with a long knife cutting through the stem of a large, very large psilocybin mushrooms. If this were not enough, this image of the psilocybin mushrooms of the Tower of Jerusalem is over plate, um, the next plate in our book, which is the Last Supper. And there is Jesus drawn larger than all the other disciples. But on the table are sliced up, Mushroom caps. Wow. 
<laughs> with the very same, the same long knives that the youths are using to cut these mushrooms down from the towers of Jerusalem. And if this were bread in that medieval time, these would be loaves of bread, and people didn't cut that bread up at that time. They, they tore it apart with their hands. And if that were not enough, if you look at the bottom of this plate, you will find distinctly drawn into the hems of the disciple, one, two, three, four, very clear mushroom caps. And we were looking at this, uh, it grew late in the afternoon. We were alone in this, uh, you know, small parish church. The church bell started ringing to mark the hour. And I, I almost felt, Julie and I felt like we were almost transported back into medieval, medieval times, that the frescoes were alive, that they were talking to us. And it was at that moment that we had that aha experience. This is a psychedelic gospel. This is different from the master story that, of Christianity that we've been told in the Bible. This is another history that has to be woven in to fully understand uh, the origins uh, and the idea of the original Eucharist of Christianity. Well, I love that, by the way, and that's a very great insight as well. And something as well, a question from that I want to ask you as well. I mean, is it also true as well that the, the tr tree of knowledge in Adam and Eve could actually also be in sacred mushrooms as well? Uh, we do believe so. Yeah. And in fact, uh, in one of the earlier uh, major photographs in our book uh, from Plain Corral in France, this is a tiny uh, chapel. It's only 20 feet wide by 60 foot deep. Um, it was built in the Middle Ages once again, and it shows it was uh, it dates to about um, 1291, and it shows a very prominent scene of the temptation in the Garden of Eden. However, if you look at that photograph, there's Adam on one side, Eve on the other, and there is a large, giant Amanita muscaria mushroom red, reddish, with the white dots meticulously uh, drawn or etched into the cap of that mushroom. The snake is wound around the stem of the mushroom. There are four smaller mushrooms with dots coming out from the base. And Adam and Eve are covering themselves, not with fig leaves, but with mushroom caps. And Eve's body is, you know, skeletonized, indicating she's already transcending to the other world. So we believe and we put forth in the book that what Eden is really about, they never identify in the Bible. It's never said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an apple or a pear tree or a fig tree. That tree is never identified. We believe that it is the psychoactive mushroom. And we also believe, if you'll allow me to pursue this a little further. Yeah, yeah go ahead. It's cool. That <laughs> The, the story of the fall and redemption, that is a later New Testament interpretation of an Old Testament myth and story, the story of the Garden of Eden. The whole idea that what, what Eden is about is the original sin and the fall of man, that is certainly essential to Christian orthodoxy. But let's go back to Genesis itself. 
what is actually what is actually being said here in Genesis. And I'm going to open up my Genesis right here, and I'm going to go to um, section where the section where God says, "Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that shall thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die." Now, what's really fascinating here is that they eat of it. Um, Eve gets the blame for it, but God doesn't kill them. Yeah, <laughs> what a surprise. You know, <laughs> and why is this? Are the creators, are God the creator secretly proud that humanity has decided not to be, you know, a, a, a grass-chewing uh, cow in Eden just to live out his life um, in that plane? where everything is provided, but to choose the path of higher consciousness. And if that interpretation is correct, we find that, that God is really here to bring knowledge. Number two, that Eve, far from being the temptress, the seductress, the weak-willed, uh, weaker sex who allows evil to come into Eden and bring sin forever for humanity, the woman is actually the one who leads humanity, who leads Adam, who leads man to spiritual evolution and higher consciousness. And if we accept this interpretation, which is implicit in our chapter on the battle of the trees, then this problem, evil, how does evil come into God's perfect creation so early on in Genesis which has befuddled and plagued scholars, rabbinical scholars, Catholic theologians for hundreds of years. There's treatises and books. It goes away. There is no evil in the Garden of Eden. There is the plant of higher consciousness. So yes, we believe that if you look at the evidence in the psychedelic gospels, that the idea of Eden being about the fall, sin, and redemption is a later Catholic, in Orthodox Catholic interpretation of what's going on in Eden. See, that's that's very interesting. It's certainly raising many different questions in my mind. What was actually really going on in the Garden of Eden? So earlier in the conversation, you were uh, talking about how there is evidence that Jesus actually traveled to Egypt. And whilst he was there, he was gaining more worldly knowledge and gaining new wisdom and new knowledge and understanding. And I know as well, this also ties into a very interesting chapter in your book, exploring the possibility of the Bible in the Gnostic Gospels for evidence showing that visionary plants were actually a catalyst for Jesus' awakening to his divinity and immortality. I mean, do you think Jesus did experience immortality by ingesting visionary plants? We have evidence that one can have a transcendent experience, an experience of the divine through psychoactive plants. So it is possible that Jesus and the disciples might have had um, a similar experience. This is uh, along the lines, let me quote Groff, who has probably conducted more LSD therapy sessions, guided more people, and reported more extensively. Stanislav Groff came to the conclusion out of decades of systematic study of human consciousness with psychedelics 
I see consciousness and the human psyche as expressions and reflections of a cosmic intelligence that permeates the entire universe and all of existence. We're not just highly evolved animals with biological computers inside our skulls. We are also fields of consciousness without limits, transcending time, space, matter, and linear causality. And certainly people who had that kind of cosmic consciousness experience in tribal times or in early Christian times or in early Hindu or ancient Greek would have, putting it in their own words, seen this as evidence of the presence of God and the presence of immortality. Wow, what a fascinating insight, Jerry. Um, Jerry, something about all this just it makes me actually think of something, right? It just made me feel as though like the complete workings and understanding the understanding of Christianity like would collapse under the knowing that it like it wasn't the word of God which Jesus spoke, but under the guidance of like from a hallucinogenic plant. It would be like a complete identity change with over 2.2 billion people. How would that change a yeah. whole religion? I, you know, I don't, I don't really see it that way. Um, because, look at it this way. Let me, let, me, let me say two things here. There is nothing fundamentally contradictory about Jesus awakening to his divinity with psychoactive mushrooms and Christianity. In the following sense, or of anyone awakening to the divinity within them. For example, as Brother David Stendhal Rost of the Order of St. Benedict, a Catholic priest whom we quote in our book says, If I can experience God through a sunset on a mountaintop, why not through a mushroom prayerfully ingested? So we've gone through this long history of Christianity where, you know, we believe it started out experientially and then it went into ritualized. It ritualized the Eucharist and all of the sacred sacraments. And then it went into scripture when the Bible was printed and interpretations and endless study and interpretations of the word of the Bible. And now today with psychedelics. We have the opportunity, both people who are in Christianity and people who are not Christian, to have a direct experience of the divine within the Christian framework. And this is not even as far-fetched as you may think, because in two <coughs> Christian churches in Brazil, uh, the Church of Santo Dime and the Church of the Union do Vegetal, the Union of the Vegetable, the, the DUDV, uh, Ayahuasca, which is a known psychoactive plant or, or brew, is used as the sacrament. And these churches have the approval and endorsement of the Brazilian Council of Bishops. So we see that it is not so far-fetched that this practice of bringing oneself closer to God could not be reintegrated into Christianity. Mm, yeah. And uh, as we say in the book, Julie and myself, we had our own, own first authentic experiences of the divine, you know, on psychoactive mushrooms back in the, in the 60s and the 70s. So we don't see this. I know it, it is going to be a stretch. Mm -hmm. I know it's going to, there will be theological points that will be very difficult, but we do not see it 
as fundamentally contradictory to the beautiful practice of Christianity or any other religion that wants to uh, encourage a direct personal experience of the divine. Yeah, it's just interesting to me. I, I do really respect your uh, point there, by the way, Jerry. It's a brilliant point. But it just makes me also ask the question as well, is how would they actually, like when you were talking about how the the bishops are actually sort of, um, are now sort of accepting ayahuasca in the sort of like, in, the, in that sort of, um, in that sort of environment, it makes me actually question how would they, how would that sort of how would that balance between sort of because we know that religion in a sense is sort of religion in a sense sort of tries to push ideologies on on a human mind, but with visionary plants, it's more about here take a look for yourself. It's more about show than tell. I don't know what you mean by show and tell, but what I understand it to be is to being the portal, being the vehicle through which someone can experience the divine uh, eternal realms, altered states and expanded states of their awareness um, and, and integrate that into their life. So I don't, I mean, to me, show and tell is just does not uh, in any way uh, capture that kind of, uh, that kind of experience or those kinds of wordings. Uh, it seems to me that it becomes to reintroduce the divine sacrament that has been prevalent in many religions back into our modern world and certainly the possibility of introducing it into reintroducing it to Christianity where it already exists in one approved. They just don't tolerate it in Brazil. They approve it, the Council of Bishops in Santo Dime, which has really grown. It has branches in the United States and Europe. And there is, uh, you know, people are exploring and experimenting, um, some people, I should say, uh, with ayahuasca, either by going to Brazil or inviting shamans to come to, you know, California or Paris and um, conduct these uh, ceremonies. Yeah, I, I like that. I just want to just jump on that point again as well, because I, I just do think there is, there is a difference between... Um, I mean, you were describing sort of shamans coming over because that's a completely different shamans coming over. That's a completely different practice compared to actually these religious religious facilities actually sort of using psychedelics as a bridge for their methods. Because them yes. two worlds, them two worlds are completely Absolutely. different. Absolutely, and we call we think it's wonderful that maps in the United States and the Beckley Foundation in England are moving and working so incredibly to get. Uh, clinical drug trial approval for the legalization of psychedelics in clinical settings. But we believe this is part of humanity's birthright. And that at least uh, here in the United States, we believe that the responsible use of psychedelics for personal growth, uh, religious and spiritual awareness should be approved to take place at sacred centers, sort of a modern elusis where emotionally stable people could go to explore these psychedelics with the proper uh, preparation and with the availability of trained guides. And we believe that this is should be legal under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, yeah, which says that Congress shall make no laws respecting the practice of religion or the limitation thereof. I'm paraphrasing it. But this is a very fundamental right. Um, in the U.S. Uh, Constitution. So we believe that uh, it should be extended 
to the the use integration of psychedelics into yeah, religious I practice. I, I love that, by the way. And uh, Jerry, just to sort of um, just to bring this just bring the podcast to end as well. It's been a brilliant conversation as well. But just a, a sort of like a closing point that I want to ask you your thoughts on as well. I mean, so with all your research and evidence that you have uncovered how sort of psychedelics and visionary plants have been a huge part in forming Christianity and even arguably other religions of the past as well. I mean, how do you actually think psychedelics and visionary plants can actually help ancient cultures of the past actually map their consciousness and understand spirituality in that deeper way? Um, We believe it was one of the mind-expanding inspirations for many for the creation of much of what we see to be essential to humanity, to a a sense of art, a sense of aesthetics, a sense of otherworldliness, a sense of unity with nature so desperately needed in this world, and a sense of compassion for for all living things. I mean, um, the Sermon of the Mount, if one goes back and looks at it, is not an eye for an eye. It's, you know, you know, uh, you know, love thy neighbor, you know, love the, the person who harms you as you love yourself. And this is the, this is, these are the teachings of expanded consciousness. And we believe that they played a role in the evolution of human cultures and now are playing a role again. Psychedelics has a long, rich history and we are in the midst of a fascinating uh, psychedelic renaissance, both in medicine and in science and spirituality. And I so much appreciate your questions. They're really great questions. And encourage your listeners who like what they heard to find our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity, or and or to visit our website, psychedelicgospels.com, psychedelicgospels.com. We're on Vimeo. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, we invite you along to you know, continue to learn about our research and our adventures. Well, well, Jerry, thank you so much, both from me and Dan, for really exploring this concept and really to explore it into our listeners' minds because they really needed to hear this, the power of actually what your findings have actually accomplished. Um, we just like to both say thank you so much for actually coming on the podcast Likewise. and sharing your knowledge. Likewise. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening and if you do want to find out more information about this incredible body of evidence and research that Jerry has put together, please head over to his website thepsychedelicgospels.com and we've also put a whole bunch of images that Jerry was actually describing in the podcast over at the Ascend podcast website in the show notes of this episode. Some really interesting pictures and so hard to argue with. And one picture that I really like and find interesting is the image from St. Michael's Cathedral where we see Adam and Eve standing behind a red and white speckled circular backdrop with mushrooms entangled all around them. And could this be another mushroom reference? Who knows? Anyways, go and check it out. You decide. And also, if you can, please support the podcast via our Patreon page. We embody so much of ourselves in this podcast and we put so much time into it and it would be cool if you could support us and help us take this to the next level. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week where we have another amazing episode. As always, keep seeking everyone. Peace.